So we try to do all our best work to actually like end violence, right? To stop violence from happening. And that has to do with our values. That has to do with the way our values show up in our behaviors. You know, I really believe wholeheartedly that art shapes the hearts of people, culture shapes the hearts of people, and that we have to shape the, until we shift the hearts of people, we can't shift the value system, we can't shift behaviors, we can't shift institutions, policy, you know, X, Y, and Z. We have to shift the values of people in their heart. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and this week we're talking with Janae Taylor and Kai Green. They're two members of Black Youth Project 100's Healing and Safety Council, which you'll hear us refer to as the HSC. We're talking about interventional healing and accountability practices, aka what to do when harm does occur within our organizations and movements. They share about how they've built out intentional practices that anticipate potential harm, how they use role plays and scenarios to come to agreements and processes together before situations happen, and their commitment to supporting and including harm doers in their restorative processes. The Healing and Safety Council of BYP 100 is a body of members who are dedicated to cultivating and supporting self-determined forms of healing, cultural production, and harm reduction. They exercise the conceptual tenets of a healing justice framework and activate this work through creative healing praxis, which focuses on prevention, intervention, and transformation. This looks like the creation and provision of an ongoing base of preventative care modules, community-based intervention to interpersonal conflict or violence, and transformative ritual through culture creation and visioning. Janae Taylor is a daughter of medicine folks and firefighters and is living as a black girl storyteller, shapeshifter, and visionary. Janae is most curious about the practice of joy and the sustenance needed to live extraordinary. Kai M. Green joins us as well, and Kai is a black trans educator, poet, and filmmaker from deep East Oakland. Both Janae and Kai are founding members of the BYP 100 Healing and Safety Council. And y'all, BYP 100 Healing and Safety Council strikes me as having one of the most sophisticated approaches around healing that is being built into the infrastructure of their organization that we have heard from so far. In addition to their national team, which we've heard of in last week's episode and then continuing today, there are HSC roles in each local chapter, and they produce resources like the curriculum you'll hear them talk about, like their Stay Woke, Stay Whole manual that concretizes the practices that keep their chapters healthy and strong across the country. So we have a lot to learn from them. I'm excited to share with you the conversation that I had with Janae and Kai over the phone, and I'm grateful for all that they shared. So thanks for being here with us. Here we go. Welcome, Janae. Welcome, Kai. Hey, how's it going? Hey there. I'm so grateful to have you both with us representing the Healing and Safety Council from Black Youth Project 100. 
and excited today to dive into part two of our two episode series with BYP 100. Um, if y'all have not yet heard episode one, where we talked to Ife and Chris about um, preventative measures uh, to, to safeguard and look out for healing in your organization, I recommend that you go back and check out that episode just before this one. And I'm excited today to dive into more of the practices around interventional healing. What are the ways that when harm or pain um, or injustice has happened, um, how we handle that in our organizations and with one another. And so um, y'all are both experienced in this work. And I'm just excited to ask you, um, first off, kind of how you felt called into the work of the Healing and Safety Council in BYP 100, whether it was a specific experience or what about your life uh, story has sort of led you to serving this role in the movement? Kai here. Um, so specifically doing this work within BYP 100 has been a real uh, learning experience, I think, from the beginning and I, I think that one thing that I love about our organization is that it's a place where people can figure out um, where they have maybe some skills and talents and gifts and, and figure out a place to hone those skills or grow and develop those skills and so I came into the Healing and Safety Council not ever really doing um, like media, mediation kind of work or dealing with um, in a sort of organizational sense, what happens when harm is done. I have definitely been in a role of mediator, a person who is a very, a holder, a listener in just in my life and in general, but it's been really great to figure out how to um, use some of those, those skills and develop those. Um, and the other thing I'll say is that the other way I came into this work and similar to Janae is we all worked on a manual together really as a, as a way to create tools for ourselves as people who are really interested in black liberation, which is our black liberation is sort of centered around black, black healing. Thank you Kai for uh, rooting us in that. Um, I would say Coming into BYP 100, uh, I had never had a political home or even identified the word organizing in the context of gathering people uh, to, you know, throw down against the state. But I had always been like somebody who was problem solving. I think I, I'm the youngest child, and so I naturally watch people my whole life navigate arguments and uh, conflict. And I came into theater of the oppressed work in 2003. And that really became a form for me to try to explore problem solving. And so while we had already started on the healing manual, I want to say March of that year, was that 2015? And by, by September, we had, the BYP 100 was preparing to throw down uh, the IACP action uh, International Association Chiefs of Police Conference was happening in Chicago and nationwide all of us had come together and I, I remember walking back to uh, Charlene's car with her. Charlene is our founding national director 
and saying to her, hey, I have this idea. And from there, that was like the sisterhood of the traveling healers, which Ipe has talked about a little bit. But this idea of like, how do we center joy? How do we center our turn up, our holistic turn up, which is a part of our values in our actual practice of organizing? And so I had been doing theater my whole life, it feels like, basically, but I never thought of that as organizing. Um, and little did I know that's actually like getting people together to have a conversation, to shift some stuff that is organizing. And so that's how I came into uh, the Healing and Safety Council. And then from there, I mean, the healing, we had this idea of the Sisterhood of the Traveling Healers, and then we had an incident happen that we had to get together and, and um, speak to and uh, give voice to as an organization. So that's really how the Healing and Safety Council got birthed that, that uh, November 2015. The Sisterhood of the Traveling Healers. I love that. And I'm curious too, Janae, when you talk about that action, and I feel like I remember hearing about, um, you know, folks who were volunteering as police liaisons and, and working with the major blockades and like incredible orchestration of, of an action of that size um, in Chicago at that time. And I'm curious, like, were there particular things about that action needs that you saw come up, you know, whether it be conflict or trauma? What were the things that you saw that inspired you to have that conversation with Charlene where you're like, okay, we need support because these things are happening? Yeah. Showing up to that action IACP, we were very intentional to, with our cheers and our chants. Um, we had Care Bears there. That was a role people had. Um, and people, we were prepared to enter that action fully equipped spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially. And we know that healing justice work is not in addition to political organizing or direct action. Healing, all of this work, direct action, political, uh, electoral organizing, all of it is healing justice work. And so... Uh, um, the Healing and Safety Council, before we were called the Healing and Safety Council, was already embedded into how we show up in our, our political organizing as a body. This idea of the system of traveling healers happened before the action happened. And that's all because, remember that summer, I think that was a, the summer of the movement of Black Lives convening. And there was an action that happened there. We noticed we needed care bears immediately. We needed we needed folks to like be police liaisons. We needed folks to throw down in Cleveland that year. And so when we came back and we're getting ready for this ICP action, it was like, all right, we already know what we need. We know we need care bears. We know we need some, we, you know, we always calling forth the ancestors. And so preparing for that action, we definitely went in with those intentions. I remember the night before the action, Charlene, asked me to come up to the front and I, and I spoke, you know, what I felt like was what the ancestors needed us to say to center us as an organization, as black folks who were throwing down with folks who uh, were allies with us in Chicago, white folks, brown folks. And so I had to, you know, come back and say, hey, this is what the ancestors are saying to us at this moment, that we are charged, we are inheriting this. And that because they have called us into this moment, that they are going to protect us. And so declaring and decreeing that um, on our organization um, definitely laid the groundwork for this is how we show up 
And that we we don't show up just to organize and throw down and we got lock boxes, but we show up fully prepared with our ancestors there. And that is definitely a root. Um, I think that sh- that strengthened us. Mm. Thank you. I'm curious, Kai, were you there then? Do you have anything to add? And, and I'm also curious about this concept of Care Bears and kind of what that looks like in action on the ground. Yeah, I was not there for those those actions, but I can speak a little bit to what a Care Bear is. In general, like when you are in a space and you are doing work, you know, I, I do this as a professor in my classrooms. I talk about emotional intelligence and it's something that we don't really always like like Janae was saying healing work is is central partially because when you are in these you know on the street really battles both physical and spiritual wars that are taking place right what are all the other things that you are carrying in your body that might come up that might show up that you might remember that you thought you forgot and how is that going to affect your ability to be in the space and do the work you were uh, there to do, but also how is it going to affect your ability to relate to the other people around you? Um, and so care bears are people who are sort of tasked with watching out being, being the people who are looking out and, and checking on the space, people who are um, cleansing the space energetically by burning sage and Palo Santo, but also just walking around and and being the people who in some ways can play mediator because you are both in in the demonstration, but also really being like the force that is partially the container um, and keeping keeping watch. In African spirituality, uh, there's a faith called Ifa, and um, there's a, a deity whose name is Egun. And I think about he he is a gatekeeper before you get to the other Orishas. And uh, that is the role of the care bear, to be a gatekeeper. And often when you think about direct action, when we assign roles, we, you know, people think green is definitely not arrestable. Yellow is possibly and red is arrestable. Um that he that, that that this role is to is often like a yellow or a green role, someone who's not necessarily arrestable, but someone who's there to and sometimes they are, right? That and so I'm not gonna limit that, but it's definitely a role that is needed to care. I think we we can't isolate the mothers and the fathers and the trans folks and the non-binary folks who were cooking and taking care of children and how important that was has always been in our organizing world as it is someone who's on the mic or someone who's throwing down. Like, both parts have to have to work together. That is super compelling, thinking about, like, how are we welcoming in folks, like you even mentioned in your own story, of not necessarily labeling yourself previously as an organizer, right? And, like, how are we welcoming in people in context and roles other than just confrontational direct action? Um, and I'm curious about, like, how some of the ways that you all extend that welcome in BYP. So I'm hearing like there's these roles around being care bears that are, you know, another kind of legitimized role in the organization. Are there other practices that y'all have that welcome people into serving in different energies other than just direct action? Yeah, definitely. Um, We have folks who, our membership is large 
that folks are doing education, political ed education through that way. Folks, of course, serve a healing and safety council. You got folks who do fundraising. Uh, you got folks who do street canvassing. I mean, the entry point is multi is 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 huge. This HSC wasn't something that you know was around when we first first started, but this was a great place to incubate this idea of like how do we create solutions. So it was an entry point for me into organizing, and it has been an entry point for others. And so. I don't think that we can say the only thing we're doing is direct action. And that's one thing people see. Yeah, we're doing it in multiple ways. Yeah, I will also just echo that because I, too, am a person who I was at the first BYP 100 before we were BYP 100 gathering in Chicago when it was a group of folks that Kathy Cohen sort of organized coming together, 100 Black Youth to basically talk about what different folks were doing um, around the country. And that was artists, that was scholars, that was organizers, that was all kinds of people um, doing all kinds of things in all kinds of places. And often while I was there, I was trying to figure out, well, why am I here? Because I'm not an organizer in the way that I've seen and observe organizing to work. And so I will say too, that for me, the Healing and Safety Council has been a place that has helped me to find my role in my political home. Um, I've, I've been a member of BYP 100 for, like I said, since BYP 100 started, but I don't think I really understood. I, I became sort of really in the work until we started to create and manifest this thing called the Healing and Safety Council, which really is 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 like trying to, it's a really interesting challenge because it's basically trying to create a world and, and a way of being and, and sort of rules and regulations in, in a lot of ways for that world. How do we want to treat each other? How do we want to feel? What do we need to do in order to feel the way we want to feel? What space do we need to heal? Like, so in order to create and produce this world that we want, and as Janae said, this is a practice space in a lot of ways for the world that we want, but how do we do it within our, within our organization? And that means like really figuring out what do we do when harm happens? And like, do we have some kind of method, our mode, our, our mode of doing that, that we need to implement? And when does it like, how do we not fall into things like replicating the state? So like mandatory sentencing, right? So how do we take into account every situation as it comes to us? So this is, it's like really a challenging I think somatic and bodily experience, and it's also a, a challenge, challenging intellectual experience to really try to create a framework or a structure from a Black queer feminist lens. And we've had to do that through multiple entry points, right? So to, to even, like, we, we, we have chairs and chants, we mm -hmm. have a manual, mm -hmm. we have uh, multiple um agendas that we've created as an organization and, and the thing about it like is black folks i mean you got black folks who don't read english you got black folks who don't speak english you got black folks have disabilities you got black i mean and so we have to be able to like how do i make sure that the message that i i love being black 
how do I make sure that like the transformative justice message is clear and how do I get that to people who can't read English who don't speak English like I have to think about all black people and so that means that we are very intentional to create as many platforms and forums to get our message out there and we don't limit ourselves to one form of organizing to do that would be to fail black people thank you yeah we heard a little bit too even from Ife and chris about some of the things that y'all have done amongst each other in terms of like practicing and trying on different ways of intervention when conflict or harm comes up in the in the movement and talking about uh, particularly Janae, you leading theater exercises and like bringing something that can be really, really heavy, like holding trauma and, and harm and also bringing some lightness and joy to like innovating paths forward from that point. I wonder if you might share with us, like what are some of those different ways that, that you do practice moving through uh, conflict and harm? I think the first thing is like asking a person who's, who, who has come to us what do you want to happen? And so from there, after the ask is answered, we do our best to try to meet that need within the skills and the tools that we had. And when we realize that we, you know, hey, we need some more support, we do our best to try to find those skills and tools that are local and uh, support those folks through that. There's a workshop that I like to lead called Why Would You Call the Cops? And I feel like this is a, it's a preventative tool that helps us provide intervention. Um, and so it's a great way to get a group of people together, go around the room and ask people, why would you call the cops? Sometimes we have folks who would never call the cops. Then there are reasons like if there's a fire, if I see if someone breaks into my house, if uh, I see someone get shot, X, Y, and Z. And so for each reason somebody mm-hmm. says, I then try to create radical ideas with the people about what are other ways we could do that? What other ways could you call a private ambulance company? Well, can you find out how many police cars have to accompany a fire truck? Like, how do we get to intervention, interventions preventively? It's kind of another, a way to look at it. Because, you know, we, when we first started, we just started getting like caseloads, like, all right, sexual assault, physical abuse, drug abuse, emotional discourse. And it just got to the point where it was like, instead of just waiting for these things to come and then figuring it out, I needed to figure it out ahead of time so that I could intervene with the better Mm. tools and that we can intervene not blinded anymore. And so that workshop, doing that, creating a list of, uh, of answers to all the things I can think of that could happen within our membership has been the tool that I've used the most and that that is a tool that I try to encourage our local reps and all of our chapters to use. Come on, y'all. Let's cheer each other on. How will we solve rape? What will we do if a fight occurs with our physical assault happens in our chapters? What, who could we call if somebody's stuff gets stolen? What can we do? You know, like I try to, we try to do as much preventative work to intervene Mm -hmm. when intervention needs to happen. Yeah, and I, I think what's great about this method is that it's really, it requires us to practice our imagination. Like, we have to we have to create the things that we want. And I think what the challenges that we come up against and some of 
the work that we all continue to do, I think ourselves, is to remind ourselves that we do have agency and we do have power to create the things that we want. Um, and we don't, we don't need to wait for somebody to like tell us how to heal ourselves. We can actually develop those things and those skills ourselves. And so the, the practices that Janae just told us about are really great because not only is this like a, an awesome facilitation and exchange, it also is a moment where people who are in the room start to recognize their own power to say, oh, I can do something different actually even though I might, I, I'm, I've never been told before that I can do something different. Um, I can imagine something and, and, and see what it, what it might become. And I think, you know, in BYP 100, there are these um, particular kinds of grants that members can get to create things. And it's, and then there's no sort of, it has to be successful because the thing is, I think we have to start, stop thinking out of like, winning and losing it's more so how do we work through a process right so if you have this idea and you want to try it out how do we support you um developing this idea in the service of black liberation and if it doesn't like go as planned how do we continue to go back to the table and try it again and that's a lot of the work that we do in healing and safety even when we're holding these processes right because we don't know the answers we're not like some people who have it all figured out we're trying to figure this out in community together how do we move forward after this harm has been done how do we um and it's not just about moving forward in some surface sense it's like how do we move through this so that when we see it again it's not that it won't happen but it's when we see it again we have the tools and it happens a lot faster right um so that it's not just we we continue to stay at the same place we're actually um, working through a process is long. It's called life, but <laughs> yeah. That's great. I love that agitation around why would you call the cops? Um, that sounds incredibly useful and has been such a clear call also to communities and especially white folks to think about in a broader sense as obviously interactions Many interactions where unarmed Black folks have been killed by the police are because white people have called the cops for incredibly minor things, right, instead of actually interacting with the resources of our communities. Yeah, and the, and the thing about it, we can always role play, right? Like, people love fiction. People will pay $15 a week to go see a movie to be immersed in fiction and conflicts and resolve it. But we can do that with each other. We can role play Everything that we think can happen, we can play it with each other and go, oh, I would do it this way. No, 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 mm. I'm going to change it this way. And if we work in community, like organizing or in organizations because you spend so much time together, group agreements should be like right there. People should already have solutions. Like there should not be a situation that we run into if we've been organizing together for over a year that we mm. haven't thought of like, oh, let's think of major what are our group agreements? Like, how do we actually be in relationship to another? And it, it always uh, kind of like blows my mind when I meet people who lived in the same neighborhood their whole lives, who lived in the same apartment building, have had the same group of friends, and they don't have any group agreements. Or they are surprised when they find out that their friend would call the cops because of this. It's like, we don't, we don't talk to people. We don't ask the questions. Now, you know, we say, 
it 10, 15 minutes later after mm-hmm. something has already happened. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just think we could do some more, so mm-hmm. much more preventative work. That's right. Well, I, I would love to get into like, when those conversations haven't happened soon enough, or even when they have, and then suddenly we're dealing with a, a moment of intervention around an, a, an issue of harm that has happened. Like, is there a specific story that y'all would be willing to share from your work where uh, you have had to support um, reconciliation, healing, et cetera, and have found like non-punitive ways to do that? Yeah. Um what are non-punitive ways? I think we're still trying to work through non-punitive ways. And some folks would say some of our actions are punitive. Um, when, when, whenever we receive a, a report from a survivor of us um, who wants some, someone who wants us to walk them through process, we put them on a two-week hi- we put our, We ask our members to go on a two-week hiatus while we try to figure out what's happening, what's going on. And so some ways, in many ways, that is seen as punitive. Um, but we try to frame it in a truth-seeking way that as we are folks who are mm-hmm. volunteers in this organ, I mean, do-paying do members of this organization, mm-hmm. that we are trying to seek truth. And so we need a couple of weeks just to do that. And as we navigate that, we're asking you not to show up inside of BYP 100 space at this time. And so that is the first step. And then some of the things that we've been able to create outside of processes mm-hmm. that have happened in um, we've had uh, interpersonal, you know, relationship vi- violence between two people who are in relationship with one another, whether that's physical violence or sexual violence. We've been able to create curriculums out of those things. And so we have two curriculums, and I'm sure Kai can speak more to them, the masculine of center and the enthusiastic consent curriculum. Both of those curriculums were created outside of a process. So one of the things that we can always ask a survivor is, hey, what are the things that you think someone needs to learn and study to shift their values, to shift their behavior? Because um, we know that a lot of this is like learned behaviors that have, sh- that have been shaped. Um, and so those are two things that have been created. And we also have like, we used to have sister circles and masculine chats. And those were times where folks um, who identified over similar things to come together and talk about what they were facing specifically around patriarchy and how patriarchy has and toxic masculinity has influenced and shaped and created some really horrifying experiences. And those circles would meet once a week and folks would share political education and share stories and get vulnerable with one another and then create teams of support to check in around, hey girl, can we get together, get our nails done or um, ways to just stay in touch with one another. But I think those are some real key parts of our curriculums that have been created outside of something happening inside of a interpersonal relationship um, that don't really feel very punitive to me. Kai? Yeah, so I'll definitely say that, first of all, about the punitive thing that, that you're talking about, Janae, and I think, you know, I would have to, I need to look up the definition of punitive, but I think that when the thing that's, beautiful and challenging about being part of a a political organization, a home, is that you are both an individual and your individual self is tied to the collective in the most um, important 
sense, right? Because you are moving as an individual body and you are moving always simultaneously as a collective body. And so you, it's a different kind of double consciousness in that way. Um, and so a lot of times when we're thinking about, you know, self-care or, or, or things like that, it's not a selfish act, really. It's, it's actually um, an, a communal act, right? Because I understand that the work that I need to do for myself has really great implications for the community that I believe in and that I love. And so my act of loving my community has to be the work that I'm doing for myself um, in not a selfish way, but in ways that where I, I look at um, how my community is asking me to show up in the places where I'm not showing up in those ways and, and really try to uh, reflect. Anyways, that is not necessarily uh, the, the question. So the question is about some of the things that we've created. But the reason that I, that I went there is because I think in terms of the masculine of center work or masculinities frameworks or tool, toolkits that we've been thinking through, part of the, the chats that Janae just brought up, the masculine chats in particular, um, in the Chicago branch, in, the, in our Chicago chapter, a lot of that work is done by folks who are trying to interrogate their own, our own um, internalized patriarchy, internalized um, homophobia, internalized things that we know um, we might not have the quote unquote right way of thinking, but how do we honestly talk about those? And I'm not going to say in a safe space. I'm going to say in a, in a space where one, we're brave to say this thing is something that I've always felt. And I'm not sure that it's quite right or that it's, it's in alignment with what a black queer feminist lens is, but can, can we talk about it? And this is a place where one, you're, you, you, compel people to be brave enough to admit, hey, I don't know everything, but also a space where we can just hold one another and not it's not a judging or a critical place. We need we need the space to be able to learn how to become the people that we want to be and to inhabit the world we want to live in. You don't just wake up one day um, living in this world, in this anti-black, white supremacist, patriarchal, homophobic world and wake up saying, I love being black and queer. That doesn't just happen. That's, that's something that you have to learn, you have to be taught. It's actually something that you have to study because all the forces around us tell us that, that that's not what, what you should feel for yourself. Um, and so I think we have the toxic masculinity sort of work, and then we also have the enthusiastic consent work, which is really important and in such a a lesson for me because I've been learning all of these things about consent that go beyond sort of sexual romantic consent, which is definitely essential. And that is the heart of our enthusiastic consent kind of framework, which all of our members have to get educated on what enthusiastic consent is. But consent is like, you can live your life in a way that is constantly asking for consent. Um, and it really, changes things. And I think I learned that through some of the theater work uh, that Janae had us do, where every single thing that happened, I think you had to ask for consent. Can I um, touch your, can I, can I shake your hand? Can I 
take your jacket? Can I open this window? Just th- thinking about consent in a very um, mindful way. It was very interesting. Also, I want to shout out um, Aisha Shahida Simmons, the documentary filmmaker of uh, Know the Rape Documentary, who is doing amazing work around sexual assault, um, Black women, and also childhood sexual assault. And the, the project she wor- she's working on now is called Love with Accountability. And I think that um, that speaks to what we are invested in in BEYP 100 is that our love for Black people and our love for one another calls us, compels us to be accountable. And that means that we want to be able to look each other in the eye. Thank you. I mean, yeah. it's rich. <laughs> and um, It's so rich. Because none of it is really, I want to say like, it's so weird when we talk about intervention, but we ain't really, you know, we the the violence has happened, right? Every time we intervene and the violence has already happened. So we try to do all our best work to actually like end violence, right? To stop violence from happening. And that has to do with our values. That has to do with the way our values show up in our behaviors. Mm-hmm. You know, I really believe wholeheartedly that art shapes the hearts of people, culture shapes the hearts of people, and that we have to shape the, until we shift the hearts of people, we can't shift the value system, we can't shift behaviors, we can't shift institutions, policy, you know, X, Y, and Z, we have to shift the values of people in their hearts. And so we are constantly trying to just create as many platforms and avenues that do that. And that's through chairs and chants. And that's sometimes through manuals. And sometimes that happens because we have curriculums that are birthed out of violence. Mm. Right. Mm. Thank you. And I do want to ask, so I'm so appreciating the emphasis around like, here's how we actually shift violence and harm over the long term, Right. And, and also like what have been your steps just in a very practical kind of step-by-step way, what are some of the policies and steps that you take when harm does happen? So we've heard about the, you know, the two-week hiatus, right? And like, I've heard things before mentioned around a grievance report. And I know Kai, you mentioned earlier mediation. Like, what are some of those processes that you have experimented with when harm has happened? So some of the things that we do when harm has happened, and I think we're trying to, again, develop a structure around that. How do we hold that as an organization? Um, and we're, we're, we just had our healing and safety um, retreat. And that's where we all came together and really started to rethink and, and reshape, rethink what our organizational shape might, might, might become in ways that can hold all of this stuff. And so some of the ways that we've done that, that looks like, healing circles, peace circles. It looks like one-on-one mediations. It looks like um, getting help from elders to come in and hold circles for folks. It looks like sometimes like asking people to take a step back from organizing and and doing more of the self-work and, and giving people accountability buddies that have plans, right? So plans where you say, these are the goals. It's kind of in a lot of ways you can think about it in, in some ways like life coaching. So um, how do this thing happen? What is it? What have you learned from this experience? How do you want to move forward? And this is, I'm talking here 
um, both both about the person who has been harmed and the, and the people who are harm doers because in our community we hold and carry both and sometimes it's the same person who is both um, harm doer and who has been harmed more more likely than not there are so many different things going on that you can't sort of always look at situations in that way so I think definitely building out these intentional processes where you work with the individuals who have been affected by whatever event has occurred um, and letting the person who has uh, who is the survivor of, of harm letting them they are the person who is centered um, in in the process and also I know in our organization, we understand as an abolitionist, I would say, organization, that people have the capacity, all people have the capacity to do monstrous things. But what we don't believe is that those people who do monstrous things are forever and always monsters. And so a lot of the work we do is working with people to believe that, you know, you did this thing and it was awful. And I need you to I need you to do the work to become something different. Um, that's that's what it means to be in this community. I think it's about for me like a commitment, right? Like BYP one hundred is a commitment to loving black people. For me, that's what I'm I'm clear about that. And I'm clear that I want to be in relationship with loving black people and that I know that that requires that I show up a particular way. And what I want to, what, what, what I think our big desire with our organization is how are we embodying that commitment? Does that mean that we are, if someone says, hey, I feel that you have harmed me this way. Even when I feel like you are telling a bold-faced lie, I ain't never show up that way. My commitment is saying, I love black people enough that I'm going to say, all right. Tell me what part of my behaviors showed up that it brought that to you, that you interpreted my intention that way. That's my, that's my posture. My posture isn't, oh, I ain't do that. I ain't, I ain't never show up like that. My posture is, okay, tell me how, you, how, how did you interpret my intention that way? And then how do I get better at clarifying my intentions? Because if, it's, if that's not what I meant, I need to make sure I fix my behavior so that I can articulate clearly why I'm doing the things, why I'm here, and why am I in a relationship with you? And so much of our organizing is centered on, like, how are we clearing our intentions? How are we shifting our posture? My friend says gratitude is, a, is our posture towards the things that sustain us. And loving black people sustains me. So that means that my posture has to constantly be in a position and in a way that is clear that, like, look, I love you wholeheartedly, and I'm here to show up, and I'm here to be accountable. And for me, if you ain't ready to be held accountable, that's a whole different thing. But in this organization, we ready to be held accountable. Are we going to be held accountable? Thank you. Yes. And I, I'm curious, like, just listening to the incredible commitment that both of you hold um, to loving your folks and to continuing to include and attempt to support the accountability of all people, including those who have been harmed and commit harm and the fact that those things overlap. Um, I'm curious about what are some of the supports that you reach for? I mean, I have a feeling that 
folks who were drawn to listen to this episode may be already holding similar work in their organizations and groups, maybe explicitly, maybe implicitly. And what do you do as a team to support yourselves in terms of reaching for the resources and support you need? Because certainly it's a lot to hold this for a whole organization, a whole movement, right? I really think we have to be adamant about being and manifesting our highest and best selves. And that means doing the healing work that you need to do to be able to hold and carry your own story and your own memories without, um, we talk about being triggered, right? And so there are all of these ways that certain things happen and you, you re-experience them in the present, but it's, it's, it's different because it's a present moment, but something occurred and it reminds you of something in the past. And so I think part of the healing work that people who call themselves healers, which I don't call myself a healer, but people who do, um, I think there is a work that, that people are obligated to do, which is to really look and touch those places where you are not healed. And I don't think we are ever healed, but it's our job to be constantly in the process of healing, coming closer to knowing the thing that hurts us so that when we feel that hurt, we're able to name it. We're able to say, you know what, when this thing happens, this is how I respond. And it's about this particular interaction, but it's also about something else. But I have such awareness that I am able to move through this in a way that's not going to um, prevent my organization from moving forward, right? Prevent me from moving forward in my organization and in relationship with the people that I love in my organization. So I think we have to be really vigilant about doing doing that work and that means therapy that means doing somatics that means getting massages that means going for walks that means whatever it is that healing process is for you like figuring first of all figuring out what it is and then making time for it in your life and that is the individual work that we need to do and it's in service of the collective right it's not a selfish thing to to do that work Thank you, Kai. Anything that you would add, Janae? No, man, he got it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I always like to point back to our inheritance and that right now, I believe this generation of organizers and this generation not being the last 10 years, but I mean, whoever's organizing right now, that we are the, the we are literally out of, you know, we're the bloom, we're the blooming folks, I think. And um, I think back to like, I'm born and raised in Washington, D.C. Our people have been here for over 150 years. And my great grandmother remembers when she got electricity in Southeast D.C. And now my great niece is here and she got an iPad. And so I think how far my, my lineage, the ones that I can see have come that my inheritance is so rich. And that, that is how we show up to organizing. We do not show up to organizing because we're angry at the state. We show up because our inheritance is rich and because we love black people. And anyone showing up any other way, for me, is not, I don't know how to work with that. And I know we got a lot of healing justice to do. 
And um, I always remember and try to remind our members that anytime I'm in a space, everybody who came before me shows up. And everybody who came with those people showed up too. And sometimes the conflict don't have nothing to do with us, but it's about things that haven't been dealt with 100, 200, 300 years ago. Relationships that haven't been fixed or healed because all of our people are in one space. And what happens when my people see your people who they might have known 300 years ago? Did they heal that thing? Did they fix that thing? Or is that thing still broken? And so I'm in reminding, in my, I'm in remembrance that in my inheritance, it's not always things that I like and that I want, but I can trust that the ancestors have always given me the tools to solve and resolve anything that I come into conflict with. Because I know my ancestors are not cruel. They wouldn't give me something that I could not resolve. And so I believe that in our lifetime, liberation is going to happen. Well, I really want to thank you both so much. I feel like we're just barely starting to get into it. Um, but I'm excited for folks to also be able to listen back to the conversation with Ife and Chris to get even a fuller picture of the depth of the work that you're doing. Um, and as you do this work for your members and your folks, just really appreciating the generosity that it is for you to share some of that innovation to a broader audience and to generously share it with all of us. Thank you both so much for being here and wishing you all of that support of the ancestors and the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you for sharing with us. Have a good one. Peace. Have a good one. Peace. You just heard a conversation between Janae Taylor and Kai Green of the BYP 100 Healing and Safety Council and Kate Werning. That's me. You can download the corresponding practice to learn a personal practice from Janae about compartmentalizing in a healthy way. This is so simple and I truly loved it. It's something you can listen to on the go. You don't need anything with you and it's super supportive. So if you're listening to this right when it came out, you'll see that practice episode post on Thursday. As always, you can support this podcast, which is an all-volunteer pro- project, by contributing at patreon.com healingjustice, or you can make a one-time donation on our website, healingjustice.org. Also at healingjustice.org, you can sign up for our email list, and we send an email about once or twice a month letting you know about new episodes and what's going on with the project. Links are in the show notes to find our social media. We share incredible quotes like some of the things that Janae and Kai have said in this episode on our Instagram and Facebook every single day. So take a look at Healing Justice. And thank you to Sonia Hansen for editing this episode and the mixing and production work from Zach Meyer at The Cold Room. Thank you for listening and for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us. Hear you next week.